episode of the OpFag cast. Joining me as always, Adam Myros. Good morning. Sean Glennis. Good afternoon. And hey, Stephen Coleman. Hey, thanks for letting me do this from prison. Hey, it's okay. Yeah, Steve Coleman is, uh, he's currently in uh, St. Paul prison, I believe, and he's calling from the, the prison phone there, calling collect. You do have your calling card ready, right Right there, Steve? Yeah, I'll have it reloaded just in case. Uh, Excellent, so. good. We're, good, flattered. good. We're flattered that this is your call. Yeah, that's nice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Steve, I mean, I know you're locked up right now, so you might not have a, you know, your your fingers on the pulse of all the goings on in your city. What the fuck is Alexander Payne doing in Minneapolis, Steve? Well, I don't believe Alexander Payne is in Minneapolis, but his movie that he's producing is being filmed. So we have Woody Harrelson running around, um, Judy Greer, Laura Dern, and Cheryl Hines. Oh my God. And and what what is this movie about? They're doing the adaptation of Daniel Close uh, Wilson, which wow. I've been anticipating for at least five years. Uh, wow. Alexander Payne bought the rights to the film, the film rights, I believe, like five years ago, and then he did uh, the Descendants, and they did Nebraska, and then he's like, ah, I don't want to direct it, I'm just going to produce it. Interesting. Now, now Woody Harrelson, he plays the titular Wilson. Is that correct? He, he's the titular Wilson. I thought they were going to get like Paul Giamatti to do it, but uh, I think Woody Harrelson makes sense. He uh, looks the part. I mean, he's grown his beard out. He's got a receding hairline, so it works. Well, I mean, you know, Paul Giamatti is uh, is a good go-to for your your sad middle-aged white guy. Right, right. But it's also it's kind of exciting though because they uh, friend of the show Casey Carmody. Uh, they're actually filming in his neighborhood, uh, and I went to go visit uh-huh. him and uh, Robin Turnblom as well, who is a contributor to Optimus Vaccine on our blog. Uh, they both live in the neighborhood. We were hanging out one night, and we saw a bunch of people dressed like a bunch of women dressed as prostitutes, <laughs> and uh, we weren't sure what film they were doing. And then maybe I they were really up. prostitutes. Maybe you this never might know. Have been, this might have been Woody's gals. I don't know. And, you know, Casey, uh, he he tends to live in seedy neighborhoods. That's true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, it was um, interesting too because we got to see Woody Harrelson's trailer, um, which is about what you would expect from a Woody Harrelson trailer. Lots of look uh, like Cheers. <laughs> it kind of it kind of looks like a bad trip. <laughs> yeah. Just a, yeah. 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 Well, I think he at least. Inspired, like you think he did the artwork, uh, just like a lot of like psychedelic paintings and kind of, you know, floating mountainscapes. I'm, I'm glad he's got a, a trailer with a custom paint job. I bet that was in his contract. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful trailer, though. I mean, now, Steve, you mentioned that you've been you've been looking forward to the Wilson movie for several years now, mm-hmm. which leads me to my next question. I was looking at the IMDb page for this movie. And there's only one thread with one comment on the message board section of Wilson on IMDb. Uh, it's from a user named Blobly Blar, 
which I can only assume is you, and it's from August 25th, 2011. And it says, I need to be part of this production. Oh my gosh, that's one word. I can't even think about how amazing this would be to work on. Smiley face, someone please offer me a position, winking smiley face. Was that your post, Steve? No, that wasn't. Um, I can't believe it's not, though. Yeah, I it's... I love the idea of someone who's, like, painting walls just being, like, so happy to be working on a production. (laughs) (laughs) Which also, like, I mean, there was no news about it at that point either, so how could you even know that this is something you would want to work on? Unless you love the graphic novel, Wilson, so much that you have to be a part of it. Your hands have to be involved in it at some point. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, is okay, you really want to be a part of this movie, and you decide that the best course of action is to make a comment on an IMDb message board in hopes that Alexander Payne will be like, yeah, I like the way this guy makes those smiley faces with the equal sign instead of the colon. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> is that well, how you get a job? Well, let me get the equal sign. I think if you read uh, some publications that we're involved with, that might be the case. <laughs> so, th- let me get this straight. This is an adaptation, a film adaptation, of a graphic novel that's fan fiction for Castaway? <laughs> that's really that's, good. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm... <laughs> See, I was working up a joke about uh, Tim Allen's neighbor in Home Improvement. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> I really would like the idea of like volleyball fan fiction. Although I don't know why Woody Harrelson without a beard would actually work really well for that. God, that's gotta be out there somewhere though. I can't believe that that doesn't exist. Volleyball fanfic? Yeah, it's probably on Tumblr somewhere. But there's there's some slash out there. I guarantee it. What if it was like the <laughs> Tom Hanks fucking a volleyball? <laughs> what if it was? What if it was Home Improvement? Um, fan fiction, but it was it had it had the volleyball head over the fence. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of home improvement slash fiction, though. Like I can see, I mean, like Al Borland is perfect. You could pair anyone with Al Borland for home improvement oh, yeah. slash fiction. Oh, he is the bear of the show. Yeah, He's a blank canvas. So here's here's what I'm thinking. So Mark, the youngest brother, towards the end of the series, <laughs> kind of turns into like a goth kid. And he's all confused. He's like, oh, I hate you, Dad. So what if Al Borland steps in and he's just like, yeah, I know your dad's a dumbass. I've dealt with him for years. And then they just get really close. They have this intimate moment where they just gently kiss. But then they know that their love is forbidden, so they just have to look like longingly at each other from afar. That's, that's, I think that's a winning combo right there. Yeah. Dave Allen, call me. <laughs> Anyways... <laughs> That's how he answers the phone. <laughs> so assuming that this uh, novel has nothing to do with uh, men peering over fences or volleyballs, what exactly is Wilson about? Yeah, Wilson is about a gentleman who he's in his like early to mid-40s, and uh, he lives in Oakland, and he's basically a sociopath. Um, hangs out who in coffee sh- yeah, Right, I know. Um, hangs out in coffee shops and just like bugs the shit out of people, uh, yells at people for talking to his dog, and um, his father is dying in Chicago, so he goes back to Chicago to visit his dying father, and he reconnects with uh, his ex-wife, and it turns out they had they had a kid that he didn't know about, and she put the kid up for adoption, 
and they find the kid, and I mean, she's like a older teenager at this point, and they kidnap her, and uh, the graphic novel itself, it moves very fast. It's very short, but it takes place over the span of, I think, like 20 years. Oh, wow. Um, like, he, go, he goes, spoiler alert, he goes to prison uh, for kidnapping his daughter. Uh, he gets out of prison, and he's still a sociopath. He hasn't changed at all. Weird how many parallels you and the, uh, the titular character, Wilson, have in common. Well, I thought it would make for a good theme for this week's show. Yeah. Steve goes to prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, better than Ernest goes to jail. It, it is. It is. It, that would be better as well. <laughs> I also would like to know, how much Ernest fan fiction is there out there, do you think? Oh, I'm sure there's enough for at least a volume. An anthology <laughs> of some sort. Yeah. Um, Sorry, a little light. I don't know how much of Ernest's core audience is literate. <laughs> I think they all jumped ship when we talked about Ernest Saves Christmas a few episodes back. Yeah, that's that's possible. <laughs> Although, you know, I, I have to say, like, do you think we'd have, like, I don't know, a movie like Crash that really explores racial tension if we didn't have Ernest Goes to Africa? <laughs> True. True. <laughs> Paul Hagg is just, like, spit out his, like, oatmeal when he's watching that movie. It's like, that's it! That! <laughs> I can't take it anymore, all this racism. <laughs> <laughs> well, we started talking about adaptations because we figured, you know, we should talk about what makes a good adaptation because there's so many of the big blockbusters uh, as, as far as films go and even television shows that are, are based on other media texts, whether it's books, comic books, what have you. Uh, so I guess that yeah, that's our big question today. What makes a good adaptation? Crickets. <laughs> yeah. Just sprung that one on you. Uh, well, here's here's an unpopular opinion. Uh, fuck the original text. It doesn't matter. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can I go on a, a rant about that? Sure. Give us your yes. hot takes. Okay, so um, I want to get the uh, yeah this obvious part of, of our podcast out of the way. Um, so there's a common misconception amongst readers and viewers that Adaptations should be faithful to their source material. Um, that they are more or less there to bring a visual manifestation of, of the words. Like, oh, we did all this reading, uh, the, the real material, now let's watch this movie and complain about all the inaccuracies. Um, so what you need to know is that, first of all, even the most faithful adaptations are not faithful. Uh, because film and writing are such different, divergent mediums, uh, in any film... <clears throat> Any film adaptation, there are cuts, close-ups, etc. Any number of manipulations that make up films elements that are just not present in the written word. So, for instance, like I tried to think of like the most boring adaptations I could think of um, that have praise as being faithful. So, films like To Kill a Mockingbird and Gods and Generals. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and even To Kill a Mockingbird is like. It completely cuts out all the interesting things in the book, oh, and it just yeah. focuses on the courtroom shit. Yeah. So, but but it, yeah, and nonetheless, it's uh, both of those are fan service, like or they they have become that. Um, you know, you watch it, you watch it in classrooms and things like that. Sure. Um, sure. So even those movies and others that you can think of in the same ilk uh, have many things that like lighting, the way certain lines are acted and directed. 
um, the set and costume design that are basically just a refraction of the filmmaker's interpretation of the original text. Um, so it's perverting itself from the original text. So in some ways, misrepresentation is the very purpose of film adaptations. So it it is to see what some central themes or relationships feel like interpreted through the lens of not only like the new medium of film, but also the set of audience members that make up the filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, there has become this policing of faithfulness in adaptations that somehow doesn't go away uh, decade after decade, and that's how we end up with uh, a movie that's coming out that I wanted to, to bring up for this very topic, which is Ron Howard's Moby Dick, Adaptation. <laughs> Opie's Moby Dick. Uh, oh, <laughs> Opie's Dick. Uh, <laughs> That's the title of this episode, actually. Yes, of course. <laughs> Opie's uh, Dick, and then the, the picture is just Tom Hanks fucking a volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> so is Ron Howard's Moby Dick going to be like 40 hours long? Or what? Yeah, I know. Speaking, <laughs> speaking of which, uh, uh, Ron Zemeckis and Ron Howard... Um, are they not the same people? Um, but anyway, Robert Zemeckis. Robert, yeah, exactly. See, that's my point. Ron Zemeckis. <laughs> you proved your own point. Yeah. Uh, so anyway. I'm pretty sure if uh, if Ron Howard directed Who Framed Roger Rabbit, then uh, I'd eat my hat. I don't think he's nearly the talent that Zemeckis <laughs> sure. once was. Sure, but they both make these boring middle-of-the-line movies now. Anyway, um, Opie's Dick is uh, titled In the Heart of the Sea. Um, So so what this movie has done, they they have distanced themselves from the original text in in title, obviously, which gives them freedom from this dull criticism, this this policing of faithfulness. Um, And by just focusing on one central scene of Moby Moby Dick, uh, so it's just about the shipwreck, uh, that gives them some freedom to not have to encompass the text exposition and conclusion. So, Myros, it's not, it doesn't have to be 14 hours. Um, it can just be Ron Howard's normal two hours and 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> but so, so in some ways, like, that's, that's, um, it's unfortunate that it has to do that, but uh, given the context of, of Hollywood adaptations and the way that the public receives them, it's a smart move. Um, but I'm sure it will be a really dumb IMAX-sponsored affair anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, it was pushed from March to December, which either means it's terrible and they want to give it a built-in Oscar bait audience, or it's great and worthy of Oscar voters' attention, which Ron Howard, mm-hmm. Opie, has, has public, he's made a public excuse for the push, and um, you could definitely support either reason interpreting that. Yeah, I'm sure a, a Moby Dick adaptation by Ron Howard is so good that they had to push it to December. That well, yeah, why do you think that happened? Uh, I'm going for the uh, built-in Oscar push, because I could not sit through this movie. Just describing it, there's no way. I hate Moby Dick, and I hate Ron Howard. So. Yeah. What do you hate Chris Hemsworth? Uh, I think he's pretty untalented. He's a handsome gent. Yeah, what about the, uh, the the remake of National Lampoon's Vacation where Chris Hemsworth has got his penis all up in uh, Ed Helms' face? Steve, is is the wind blowing in prison? I keep hearing all this shuffling. Yeah, sorry. It's, are, the guards, uh, are, you, are the guards roughing you up? In the yard? Are you in the yard right now? No, but there is a heat advisory, so there's uh, you know lots of fans blowing around. I apologize for that. No, it's, that's fine. That's fine. 
totally understand. Really set the mood like I was on a, a vessel headed out to sea. <laughs> I know. Yeah, the movie, the movie just look, from the trailer it just looks like um, the worst parts of Master and Commander boiled into one movie. Uh, yes. What are the best parts of Master Commander? <laughs> out of curiosity, it's not bad. I mean, <laughs> I haven't watched it in a while, but I, I bought the double disc. Oh. Mm. Um. Another thing that you you kind of touched on here, Sean, is when people are expecting like faithful adaptations, they're also operating under this assumption that the original text, whether it's a book or you know a previous movie or something like that, that it's automatically perfect, I guess. Like, don't change anything. There's nothing wrong with this. Good Where, point. I mean, good lord, Moby Dick. I, I mean, it's, you know, it's fine, but I could go the rest of my life without having to read that again, and I'd be perfectly fine. Uh, so I think, I think that's a big problem. And then when you do get these films where they're awful, absolutely awful, but then you, you have all these critics that are like, or fan communities especially, they're like, well... It's not a very good movie, but it's super faithful to the original source material. Like, that's some sort of badge of honor. And the movie that I keep going back to when I think of why faithful adaptations are bullshit uh, is Watchmen, which (laughs) is, like, three hours long. In addition to that three hours, there's, like, an animated movie that's, like, another three hours long that you're supposed to watch in conjunction with the special director's cut, like, nine-disc Blu-ray or whatever the fuck. And it's just, it's horrible. It's completely unwatchable. And why you would, like, torture yourself and put yourself through that when you could literally sit down and read the entire graphic novel in the same amount of time and have a much better experience is completely beyond me. And something like Watchmen, nobody touched it for years. Like, they tried to get Terry Gilliam to do it for a while, I think, and he wouldn't touch it because there's, there's so much going on in there. There's, like, all these texts within the text. Like, there's newspaper clippings, and there's this whole, like, pirate side story, and all these things going together. You just, you can't make a movie out of that. But, you know, why not yeah. try? <laughs> and people, people like this are kind of admitting that they're, they're, they have no reason for watching the movie. Um, so if your only, like, motivation is to be, like, uh, but they left out this part and this part, and it's so important to the book. It's like, go read the book again. Mm-hmm. If you're not going to come to a new text, whether it's an adaptation or not, for something new, then why why are you wasting your money there? Exactly. There's there's well, no point in doing it. Yeah, I think Watchmen is an interesting case because it kind of folds in like this problem of people complaining about deviation from source materials becoming continuously more exasperated as the film industry really folds in the uh, the comic book nerd uh, segment of society who uh, are probably among the more adamant that their source material be lovingly preserved, even though it's not. <laughs> yeah, that's the biggest joke of all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's, again, you see something like Watchmen, and you could look at the kind of the polar opposite of that, which in its success rate, at least, as far as staying faithful, would be, for me, like Sin City, which is was actually adapted by Frank Miller along with Robert Rodriguez, and it's it's almost literally the page put to screen, and it works. But, uh, yeah, Watchmen, it doesn't. It's very, very dull movie. Yeah, and I think, well, and Sin City works, too, because... I think just the way the style of the movie and the style of the comic book, they just it just works well. Like when you read the Sin City comic book, it's easy to visualize what it would be like as a film to see these things in motion, and that doesn't necessarily work with everything. Yeah, I think that 
it's uh, well, I mean, Sin City, the comic, has a lot of film sensibilities as well. I mean, it's it's obviously kind of film noir, mm-hmm. so it, it's pretty easy to translate it. So. Yeah. Um, well, and, oh, go ahead, Sean. I was just going to bring up another instance that I can't really speak to it as an adaptation um, because I haven't read the um, the novella, but uh, Solaris. Um, so this has two movies, one from the mid-70s and one from the early 2000s. Um, and it's a really inter- interesting instance where um, someone like Soderbergh doesn't care whether the, the last adaptation is canonized or not and just wants to do something new based on the original text. Um, and I think that even like when the new Spider-Man came out, the one that, that you hate, Steve... Oh, uh, yeah. I, I thought that it was interesting. I mean, even if it was like uh, corporate mandate, um, I thought that it was really interesting that the public allowed. I mean, it it, it had to be something like Spider Man t- to get them to get the public to allow this. But it was interesting that they were open to a new um, adaptation, um, even just a couple years down the road. And I, th- I think I think that's interesting. I wish it would happen more with other things where filmmakers are like for whatever reason, they want to make a new adaptation of, of whatever divergent or, or, or even something less more obscure. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it, Spider-Man's interesting, too, because, I mean, one of my biggest qualms with that movie is Peter Parker is just fucking horrible. He's a terrible character. Uh, and Peter Parker, the character in the comic books, he, he kind of works because he's such a nerdy, just socially awkward weirdo. So when he puts on the Spider-Man suit, he has this transformation, and it just it just works well. And by making him like Mr. Cool Guy Skateboard in the movie, it kind of it ruins all of that. And that's not to say, oh, it's bad because it's not what Spider-Man should be. It's just saying, well, in the context of this movie, this character is hot garbage, and I wish he would die a horrible death. You mean it's um, not? You mean it didn't ruin my childhood? No, it did. I, <laughs> that would be the most speed out of title. And the funny thing is with the comic book stuff, and this always cracks me up too, because comic book fans are just the most obnoxious human beings, and they're they're constantly complaining. Except for the listeners, yeah. Except for we love you guys. You're the best. Give us five stars on iTunes. No, I, I think, you know, I've read plenty of comic books in my day, and I think this is something that comic book fans can all agree on, where people they take things too seriously, and they say, oh well, Batman's gonna suck because Batman isn't like this, that, and the other thing. There's no, like, Batman doesn't have a concrete identity. We can't say definitively what Batman is or isn't. Like, we just have this kind of constructed idea of what Batman is because we've watched the 1960s TV show and we watched the animated series and we watched the Tim Burton movies and we watched the Christopher Nolan movies. So we have this, like, whole constructed idea from all these different things of what Batman's supposed to be about. And (laughs) And none of those things... Yeah, they, those all fight each other. They don't work together. Yeah, exactly. All. <laughs> they all fight each other. And people say, well, he should just be like he is in the comics. Well, guess what? All of those Batmans fight each other, too. Like, there's no definitive... You, anytime Batman switches writers, the whole idea of Batman changes. And people always latch on to these different things. Like, oh, well, Batman's a vigilante, but he never kills anyone. He has killed the shit out of people. Okay? <laughs> There's and, and this is going as far back as like the 1940s. And you, you could look this up. If you're listening right now, seriously look this up. In the 1940s, which is like probably the most wholesome, pure image of Batman that people have, there's a comic where Batman is chasing down like a mentally ill man that has escaped from an asylum, like not even a criminal. And Batman 
is flying in the uh, the the bat plane thing, and he drops down a rope with a noose on the end, hooks <laughs> the mental patient around the neck, hangs him from the bat plane. <laughs> Hands a fucking mentally ill man who has not committed a crime, and then the closing panel is Batman saying he's probably better off this way. <laughs> and I'm this sure if you, take a, if you take a look at its racial politics, I'm sure it doesn't shine any brighter. Oh no, no, and, and this, yeah, and when it comes to uh, even like little things like dealing with class and stuff, like Bruce Wayne's this is this rich guy. And there's uh, a recent Batman comic. Well, not too recent. I think it was the last big Frank Miller run in, like, 2007. Uh, you know, the hilarious I'm the goddamn Batman phase. Uh, but there's this one where there's this gang of just, like, lower-class hooligans, like, not super criminals working for some evil mastermind, and they're smuggling bleach for some reason because that's a hot commodity on the black market. And Batman busts in, he grabs one of the smuggled bottles of bleach, lights it on fire like a Molotov cocktail, burns all these men alive, and then there's some uh, some other, like, woman superhero person, and she's outside watching him do this, and he just walks out, and he's like, yeah, baby, and then they just, like, fuck on the ground in front of the burning corpses. Like, so <laughs> you, you mean to say that Frank Miller's worldview may be slightly problematic? Yeah, just a little bit, just a little bit. So what you're getting, is, and what I'm getting at here is there is no Batman. There's only interpretations of this character through a million different writers that have dealt with him over the years. And even within the DC Universe, like, Batman, they spin him off into, like, other verses all the time. Like, uh, I was talking to Colin today, and he was telling me about how there's this whole series of Batman comics where... Batman is in, like, the 1800s, and he's fighting, like, Jack the Ripper. So, you know, what's Batman? Batman is nothing. <laughs> he's that's nothing. He's nothing to me. He means nothing. <laughs> so, yeah. Don't get, don't get mad at Batman. Don't say Suicide Squad is dumb because it's not Batman-y enough. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, comic book fans should, in reality, as far as any sort of literature, they're kind of spoiled compared to the majority of, uh, if, if you're some sort of literature snob, then film adaptations are inherently going to be more challenging. I mean, at least you're translating from a visual medium to a visual medium uh, when you're dealing with graphic novels. But. Sure, sure. Uh, so, should we talk about some of our favorites? or? Yeah, I think I think that's fair. Who wants to go first? Uh, Myros, you want to you take the ball on this one? Uh, I can do that, sure. I mean, I, I, I did mention uh, Sin City, which I do have great respect for. Uh, there's a couple that I, I kind of highlight ones where I think they, they actually elevated their source material, which for me I had two in mind, uh, one of which is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, which takes... Uh, the Stephen mm-hmm. King novel, which is fine, it's it's still a beach reader, you know. Stephen King doesn't, uh, in my mind, he has he doesn't really write great art or anything like that. He's he's definitely a drugstore novelist. But um, yeah, The Shining kind of like Stephen King does not like the movie because it it's not very faithful to the spirit of his novel, but it's better. It's a lot better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it goes from being a, a simple thing about a man dealing with alcoholism and, uh, yeah, it turns it into this wild descent into madness, and it's just visually amazing. I mean, everyone's probably seen The Shining, but, yeah, it's uh, really wonderful. 
Well, when you said Stephen King, I thought you were going to say The Lawnmower Man, but I guess I was wrong. Maybe The Shining's a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, well, well, you since you brought up Kubrick, um, I was going to mention um, in s- that he basically made a career out of doing that with, with text. The Shining is mm-hmm. probably the most well-known. Um, and same with Hitchcock. They would take these lesser-known dime store novelists and you know, very mediocre, pulpy books and turn them into interesting movies using basic the, the basic um, narrative beats as a canvas for their visual playground and um, sometimes, but not always often enough, uh, use them to uh, talk about social issues. I think Shining is a good example of that. Sure, and I, I think that's kind of the, the best way to adapt something or remake something is when you see something you're like, you know, there's there's a lot of garbage here, but there's something really cool that I can tease out and expand upon and make it my own thing. Like, that's that's when you should adapt something. Uh, and I know, yeah, you mentioned, like, Kubrick and Hitchcock, and uh, a lot of the French New Wave guys did that, too, uh, not only taking cues from, like, American film noir and stuff like that, but uh, yeah, I think when, when Truffaut made, like, uh, Jules and Jim... I think he, he made it after he read like some you know one penny romance novel that he picked up at a drugstore or something. He's just like, yeah, yeah I want to yeah. do this. My brother has actually read that, um, and I think his reaction was pretty lukewarm, as you can expect. Yeah, I'd imagine. Uh, yeah, um, <clears throat> not this isn't like one of my favorites, but uh, a modern example of that is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is a fantastic, um, I guess, uh, neo noir comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's taken from from um, a Dashiell Hammett type book that nobody has ever read, and makes it into just this really fun movie. Yeah, uh, my other one was a similar thing: is Fight Club, which I think is kind of a shitty book. And uh, yeah, Chuck Palahniuk's kind of that he's shown himself to be a really one note uh, writer. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, not not great stuff, but. Uh, Fincher kind of announced his presence as a major directing talent with that film, and uh, it's kind of transformed this really slight piece of literature into a really zeitgeist capturing, uh, visually resplendent film. So, yeah, uh, that's and, another and, one. Really. Yeah, similar to Choke, isn't that such a good movie, guys? <laughs> Lord. <laughs> you know, I'm still waiting for. Do you remember that short story that he wrote about the kid who, like, I think it ran a Playboy. The kid who he's like swimming in a pool and he decides to like put his butthole on like the pool filter and it sucks his butthole out of his body. Yeah, it's called when, guts. Yeah, when is that one gonna get adapted? <laughs> Pixar, you're dropping the ball. <laughs> guts sounds like a name for a Pixar movie. Let's imagine like them gonna... following the guts through the filter into the pipe and tries to connect back with the boy. Yeah, there you go. What if, what if they were going to make it, and but they they were like, oh, the title Inside Out is already taken. Ooh, oh. yeah, that, that that would probably be it. Well, I like to think they do a really faithful adaptation. There's no music the entire time. It's just dead silent as this kid gets his butthole sucked out of his body. Fade to black, and then you hear do 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 do. You have it, guts, and then they play the guts. That would be wonderful. I can dream. <laughs> My favorite uh, adapters are the um, Coppola family. Um, 
<clears throat> Apocalypse Now um, is based on uh, the heart in, or the heart of darkness by Conrad, mm-hmm. um, which is a novella that obviously um, was written before Vietnam, and Francis Ford Coppola takes just like these central themes and some of the mysticism in that and applies them to something that lives as its own separate text. I, I often forget that it's based on um, Heart of Darkness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I mean, I don't have to preach to anybody about how good Apocalypse Now is. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, Marie Antoinette is um, a Sofia Coppola movie that uh, I think is probably underrated, although I haven't seen it in a while. But... Um, she took this uh, historical biography and turned it into a very personal profile that, that speaks to young people, especially young women, um, at this present period as much as during Antoinette's reign. Um, and she extrapolated upon a source and used it as her own. And, um, it's just like a complete appropriation, which is um, what I find most desirable about um, film adaptations. Yeah, I think those are, those are both really, really great examples. Um, the one that comes to mind for me is Sideways. So oh, yeah. I uh, actually I saw the movie first, and I didn't know it was adapted from a book, and I really liked the movie a lot. And then I, I think I got the book for Christmas or something. It was a weird thing. Like I was like, oh, this is a book. And then at first I thought it was like one of those books where it's the book based on the movie or something. But then I was like, oh, no, no, it's, it's actually a novel. And I read it, and it might as well have been a book based on the movie because it wasn't particularly great. Like, it was fine, but it wasn't really worth the, the time invested. And But it was really cool to see all the things that I really enjoyed about Sideways and how, you know, those those things were sort of teased out of this book that had a lot of filler and a lot of things that I didn't necessarily like. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Most of Alexander Payne's, I think, were not. Yeah. I think about Schmidt was, too. And I, I can't imagine that being a particularly uh, interesting novel. I'm very <laughs> glad I stuck to the movie, because I love the movie, but it doesn't seem like you'd get the same character nuance from yeah. without Jack Nicholson. <laughs> yeah. Or or even just sense of, of time and place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and with, with, uh, with Sideways, when I was reading the book, like, I can't picture the main character not as Paul Giamatti. Like, it's the most Paul <laughs> Giamatti role ever. <laughs> so perfect. Uh, how about you, Steve? What do you got? Um, I also have a Paul Giamatti movie in mind, um, American Splendor, oh, which, um, I mean, is probably just, regardless of being an adapt- adaptation, is one of my favorite films of all time. I think I might be the only person I've heard say that out loud, but um, I don't know why more people don't say it. It's um, a very, um, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it before or since. Um, just the idea that there is this documentary element where they're interviewing the actual Harvey Pekar, the creator and star of the American Splendor, graphic novels and comics mm-hmm. and then they're actually adapting parts of these comics into the film and it just sort of goes back and forth between you know breaking the fourth wall having Harvey P. Carr in the actual film um, having him on set while the actors are playing his role mm-hmm. and uh, and it also sort of plays with the idea because for American Splendor they had a lot of different artists do the artwork, um, several different interpretations of what Harvey P. Carr looks like, and there's a lot of subtle changes in like Paul Giamatti playing Harvey P. Carr. They kind of play just very subtly with his image. So in certain scenes, he looks just a little bit. It's little things like the way his hair is combed. 
around or the way he's dressing. Um, and I thought that that was just a very, um, it was, it was faithful. I mean, <laughs> not that it needed to be, but it was faithful to the source material, but it also brought it to this whole other level. I think it would help people appreciate the graphic novel even more if you see the film, um, or if, even if you have no idea what it is, um, this really kind of opens it. it. It introduced me to, uh, uh, a lot more, uh, or I should say many more things that I ever would have anticipated to get into, like kind of opened me up to graphic novels and uh, mm-hmm. ones that weren't about superheroes, ones that are, you know. About know, old white guys. About old white guys. Hairlines. Like Wilson. <laughs> like yeah. Wilson. Yeah. It all comes back around, baby. Mm-hmm. So you guys got any uh, closing comments here on adaptations? Yeah, yeah, I don't, I, I have plenty. Um but uh, that just reminded me of adaptation, um, which obviously is worth worth talking about. But the oh, way yeah. that it messes with its original source or completely um, deviates from it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I absolutely love that movie. Absolutely love it. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, definitely one of my favorite scripts. And I feel like it's believable to me that Charlie Kaufman actually was tasked with adapting uh, The Orchid Thief after being John Malkovich, and this is what he turned in. And, mm-hmm. No, uh, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> that astounds me. <laughs> do, we, do we have any um, least favorite adaptations? Ooh. That's a tough one. Well, I, I mean, I, I definitely have one. <clears throat> okay, what do you yeah. got? <laughs> you guys, well, you guys can think of some while I all right. rant, rant about Billy Bob Thornton's All the Pretty Horses. Oh, God, I forgot that existed. Jesus Christ. Yeah, so uh, it's hard to describe just how bad it is. Um, it's you know, you know when you see, like, a pile of, like, $5 DVDs at Walmart, or or you did, like, five years ago? Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, like, one in there that it looks like it was about how, like, a dog brings a family together or, or, or something like that, <laughs> kind of like PTS dog. Yeah. Um, and the DVR, DVD art looks like it was done on somebody's lunch break. Uh, <laughs> like, exactly what you would expect from that movie is exactly what All the Pretty Horses turned out to be. Um, <laughs> it's just like this terrible mess, and apparently Bill Bob Thornton, um, which this is a classic classic um, cutting room floor excuse, is that uh, the director's cut is like three and a half hours long, and... And uh, oh. I, think, I think him and Matt Damon both were like, oh, well, if you saw the original, you would love it. Um, they cut out all the good stuff, but it's one of those things where it's like, if the stuff that was in this one is anywhere in that director's cut, it cannot be good. <laughs> I think, yeah, that that that's fair. Well, and th- it's it's like a Cormac McCarthy novel, too. Like, how do you... Oh, I mean, I like... I actually, I might be an apologist. I'm not... I don't have my pulse on the reception, I guess, that much. But I like The Road, actually. Yeah, I know. I the, the Road movie is fine. I, I think the book is fantastic. Um, yeah. And I'd like to see someone try to tackle Blood Meridian, too. But, uh, I mean, it, it, it would take a special talent. You can't just... There's a lot of weird obviously, shit in Blood Meridian. Obviously, No Country for Old, old Men um, has a lot mm-hmm. of fans. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, oh, Jesus. Well, my least favorites... I already mentioned Watchmen... And I think I did an adequate rant on that. Uh, oh God, what was the other one? I was just thinking of it. 
Fuck, Very I funny. just slipped out of my head. Myros, you give yours while I try to remember. I was I was so focused on it that I just forgot about it. <laughs> well, yeah, one of the uh, categories I wanted to talk about when we were when we brought up adaptation was stuff that that a lot of people consider to be unfilmable, which again, we did talk about Watchmen, which was widely considered to be that. And uh, I guess what springs to mind for me is Kurt Vonnegut. Like, uh, and there's just a, a slew of Vonnegut adaptations that are all just hot garbage, like Breakfast of Champions, unwatchable. Uh, Slapstick is, is one of the worst movies ever made. And, uh, <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Fuck, I hate it too. Uh, I think everyone hates it. I don't think there's like a fan on Earth. <laughs> uh, yeah, even uh, Slaughterhouse Five is not, not a very good movie at all, so. It, it, no one's really done Vonnegut justice, and I think it would be difficult to do so because, I mean, he has a lot of iffy novels, but even his great novels, uh, Slaughterhouse-Five is about the only one that even feels remotely filmable to me. Oh, I got one here. How about uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau? <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, it's tough for me to say that I hate it because I it's kind so of fun. love it. Yeah, it it does it does everything that I want an adaptation to do. It's just like, oh, here's this great original work, and then, you know, somebody just all drops trow and takes a big poop on it. And then Marlon Brando just gets drunk and just like goes off the dome. Dude, there are so many amazing things about that movie. Like if if you watch it with the subtitles on, <laughs> which I would recommend doing because a lot of the audio is really muffled, but there's parts where Marlon Brando is saying things and he's clearly not just trying to mumble. Like, he's supposed to be saying lines, but the actual subtitles say inaudible speaking in, like, brackets, <laughs> which is incredible. <laughs> and, like, he, he didn't read the script at all or anything, so he put in, like, an earpiece and would just have people feed him lines, which I guess was a common thing that he did towards the end of his career. And wherever they were, he kept picking up, like, police scanners and, and shit. So <laughs> he would just, instead of saying his lines, he would just, like, mumble something about, like, a robbery or something because he'd be picking up a police scanner. So, yeah, Island of Dr. Moreau, you should watch that. If you like orgies with pig people and the world's tiniest man and Marlon Brando in a bunch of white paint, it's the movie for you. I think that uh, documentary about that movie is coming to Netflix or just recently did. I, I think I saw it on some list as too. Yeah. Going I hope it does because there's so many rumors about – because the original director, he like slaved over this script for years and then like two weeks before production, they just fired him out of nowhere and they had to bring in someone else. But the guy they fired, I guess he was so pissed off that he just like stayed on set to watch the whole thing get fucked up. And apparently he dressed up as like one of the monster mutant people and is just in the movie as an extra, but they didn't know he was there. So there's a lot of crazy rumors about the movie. <laughs> I was just going to mention, um, as far as uh, most surprising adaptations that turned out, like if you were going to tell me that Moneyball was going to turn into a, a decent movie, um, I wouldn't know where to start. Yeah, but it is. That's, that's a good one. That's a good one. And Noah... I don't know if you guys have seen Noah, but uh, it's not that bad, and uh, it's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting that they, you know, take the drama from the Bible without feeling like uh, they had to subscribe it, its morals. 
Okay, I, actually, I have, a, I have a Noah story. I think I told this to, to Steve already when he was over this past weekend. Uh, we were hanging out and drinking, and Casey was in town, and Robin was in town, and hanging out with Megan and Ethan, all from OptimismVaccine.com, which you can visit. Uh, and Megan, for some reason, just, like, flipped on Noah, and it was just, like, the first few minutes were just, like, dumb as shit. And Casey goes, you know, I bet the final shot of this movie is, like, a rainbow, and then there's, like, a sweeping orchestral score. So Megan goes, okay, let's see. And she fast-forwards to the end, and lo and behold, <laughs> it was perfect. Wow. <laughs> oh, Big Darren doing big things. It's not Noah. that bad, though. Uh, especially in his catalog, it's one of the best. In Aronofsky's catalog, you think Noah is one of the best? Well, but I hate most of everything that he touches. Oh, well, I, I, I've, I've kind of soured on him over time. I, the wrestler is by far and away my oh, favorite. Oh, sure, sure. All right, so, uh, Steve, you got you got any others you want to talk about? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say uh, the Indian in the cupboard. Um, <laughs> Why? Yeah. Why were you going to say that? I saw that when we were talking about, oh, what are we going to talk about <laughs> the podcast? I saw that like, what the fuck, Indian in the cupboard? You know, I, I think, saw that when I was like 10, and I didn't think it was that bad. For for me specifically, I think it was the first film in my life where I had read the source material and was so looking forward to the adaptation, and I was just completely just try it was a traumatizing experience i tried to force myself to like it i even bought the fucking vhs when it came out because it came with the little bear plastic figure and um <laughs> did you lock it in the fucking linen closet and hope that a little indian man yeah, would come out never came out oh. never came out of the closet um he and it just it's so disappointing and i know that there's i mean frank oz directed it which i you know, <laughs> it, 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 just before In and Out, and um, <laughs> I can't describe how much anger I had as a ten-year-old boy. <laughs> just it, um, like for some reason they take it from England to New York, um, and it's just uh, it's just a pile of shit. It's unbelievable, and it, it got really good reviews. Which really? baffles me. How's like? Uh, I mean, not the bad. I mean, it has a seventy percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes, mm-hmm. which is certified fresh, I believe. <laughs> and, Although uh, that is from nineteen ninety five, so it's a little suspect. It's true, um, but it does have one great scene, and that's where uh, Omri, the main character of the film, which I don't think there's a lot of boys named Omri, um, but he's mugged on the street after he has to go buy saw blades for his dad at like this tool tool shop and this kid has a, this, this kid has a mohawk he pushes him against the wall and he's like what is this junk hey give me your money and he has pennies he literally has just pennies and the kid steals his pennies and Omri is so traumatized and he doesn't chase after the kid though the kid runs away he's just like hey you don't deserve that hair <laughs> um, so look it up. That's what I'm putting over this week. You're putting over Indian in the cupboard? Well, nope, why, just why that is, scene. Just that scene. Why is just his dad scene. such a dick? His dad gave him a bag of pennies to buy fucking saw blades? Well, no, it's the change for buyings from Bahia. Oh. He bought the saw blades because okay, he stole so they, the saw blades. Stop, and, okay, the shop owner is a dick then for giving him yeah. pennies. Yep. Okay. Good to know. 
Good to clarify that. Yeah. Right, so you... we have like RoboCop or something? Isn't RoboCop like pop into that movie at some point? No. I thought there was like a scene with like a RoboCop dinosaur battle or something. I think you're thinking of RoboCop. Oh, you know, I think there is a brief scene. Yeah, he sees them all fighting and then they look at him and he closes the cupboard really quick and locks it. Yeah, because uh, he, he has like a RoboCop toy that he brings to life. Because yeah. it's like the same studio, so they just threw in a, a T-Rex and RoboCop as cross-promotion. Well, there is also um, Boone, the cowboy, and uh, they're sitting around late one night watching uh, Motley Crue music videos. Ooh. Um, girls, 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 I think, specifically. And uh, he says, I can't believe they let kids watch this. So that's how the uh, PTC got started. Um, <laughs> that that makes perfect sense. Uh, yep. So you are putting over a single scene from Indian in the Cupboard this week. Yep. Just That's look brilliant. up. You don't deserve that hair. <laughs> so, That's that's incredible. Uh, well, on the great adaptations list that we did not get to, that was in the email chain, that I want to give a little shout out to. I don't want to get into it per se as you move along, but uh, Ghost World. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah one of my one favorites, too. yeah. Really yeah, I great. Yeah. I traded my DVD of that for some reason. And I'm you shouldn't sure. have. It's, like, out of print now. It's worth a lot of money. I, is it really out of print? It was for a while. Huh. Oh, that's a shame. Uh, yeah, anyway, it's great. Watch it. Everyone watch it. Uh, but, yeah, I guess the one topic I wanted to get to briefly uh, would be addressing Steve here. But uh, before we get to putovers, uh, why don't video game adaptations work? Why, why, why don't they work? Wait, wait, wait. Adapting things into video games or from video games? Like Super Mario Brothers? <laughs> we're going to go with from video games. I suppose so, it so from really video games to films instead of films to video games? Yeah, although I think they both have a pretty piss poor track record, but yes, we're going, we're adapting things into film this episode. Yeah. Okay, um, I don't, you know, it's funny because so many video games try to be like movies, like they try to adopt the language of cinema to tell stories, and most of the time it's just stupid, and it feels like a you know direct to DVD movie, and it doesn't work. And the same thing tends to happen when movies try to tease out stories from video games. The fun thing about video games is most of the games that get made into movies have shitty stories. So you can't really have a good movie if your story is shit. I can play a game like Doom, and I can say, well, you know, it's it's fun. I'm moving through corridors and shooting the heads off aliens, and that's enough. I just need, you know, just base motivation for shooting things. But when I'm watching Doom the movie in the theater with The Rock, it doesn't exactly work as well. Because there's no story to Doom, so you have to kind of make things up. And Super Mario Brothers is even more insane, because that game literally has no story. Like, you start playing Super Mario Brothers, and there's a princess in a castle, and that's all you fucking get. That's it. It's just a trope. The story is a single trope, and that's it. There's no story. So, the question is, how the hell did they come up with the story they did? You think they just like, have like yeah. a, a stripped down two guys go rescue a princess? The end. But it's like no, it's the most asinine. Like, yeah. Well, the funny thing about Super Mario Brothers is there's actually a script, and you can you can download it from the internet. It's out there. 
but someone came up with a script that could not be made in the 1980s because there was no technology to pull it off. But it's like this surreal, acid-tripped nightmare because when you take all the aesthetic elements of Super Mario Brothers, that's basically what it is. Like, just a bunch of really weird, trippy shit. Uh, so it never got made. But that script would have been at least interesting. Um, I'm guessing when they made the Mario Brothers movie, they probably had some generic action movie for kids in the pipeline, and they just slapped some Mario Brothers shit on it. Because nothing makes sense. The weird anti-gravity boots, the creepy Goomba men, uh, it's just, it's all very weird. Yeah, I, I guess, I mean, you said maybe that other script would have been interesting. I think... Th- the Mario Brothers movie is a tremendous disaster, but it's interesting. Yeah, it's something. Yeah, I, the fact I don't know. It was made is interesting. <laughs> That's an interesting script. It's like it, really, this is what this is what the hell. <laughs> the other problem that video games kind of run into is they tend to get just because it's a known product and people go, well, it's just going to make money regardless. So who gives a shit? So they just hand it to whoever. So most of the video game film adaptations have been made by Uwe Boll, who exclusively makes shit. So of course, if he gets a hold of a movie, it's going to be shit. Uh, what I think is more interesting though, is movies have finally like video games are still struggling with how to make games more cinematic. And really it's something they should just abandon. But there's been a lot of movies lately that kind of feel more like video games uh, Elysium's a good example, and uh, that Tom Cruise movie. Oh, fuck, what's Eat, it called? Great Love, the video. Uh, Gr- Groundhog's Day with Aliens. Which which one's that? Eat, uh, sleep, Edge die. of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow basically feels like a video game. Um, not only because of the whole, like, restarting when he dies thing, which is, you know, broadly pretty video gamey thing, but just the way it's shot, the way it moves, uh, the, the look of the movie is very video gamey. So, yeah. Video game movies suck. Is there <laughs> is there like one decent one that you might uh, suggest? Because I, I can't think of one. I tried to think of one. I couldn't come up with one. What about Street Fighter? No, I mean, that's funny. Mortal I mean, Kombat. Yeah, the original Mortal Kombat is really enjoyable, but it's it's not a good movie. It's just fun and dumb. <laughs> it's, it's entertaining. Uh, that's another weird thing, too. If you look at all the genres of video games out there, fighting games have been adapted more than any other genre, which is hilarious because they have the least amount of story or character development out of any genre of video game. So why you would choose to do that repeatedly is beyond me. Well, the uh, the Dark Knight came from those Xbox games, right? Arkham? Oh, no, I mean, that was... I- I guess well, that's that's kind of the other way around. I like the Arkham Asylum I'm, and Arkham City games. I'm just um, kidding, but yeah. But no, no those those <laughs> like, no, it's interesting to bring it up because they sort of influence each other. Yeah. So oh, yeah, the yeah. Arkham series and then Nolan's movies, they almost work hand in hand, even though they're separate. But you could tell that like Nolan was familiar with those games existing, and Rocksteady, the developers, were clearly familiar with Nolan's films. So they're just kind of like this back and forth between them. Yeah. Oh, you can you can really kind of feel the influence of those games in the uh, the new wave that just debuted at Comic Con, like that that new. Uh, oh yeah, Suicide uh, Squad. Yeah, Suicide Squad and Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice. They both really kind of feel a lot like those video games. Mm-hmm. Um, how are we doing on time? Oh shit, Steve's got to get out of here. All right, yeah. put over time. Adaptations are over. Myros, what are you putting over? Uh, I am putting over Rectify, which uh, just debuted its uh, third season on uh, Sunday, I believe. 
Uh, yeah, it's a show about a guy who was falsely, question mark, convicted of a murder and rotted in jail from his teens until his uh, late 30s and uh, gets out in a small southern town and has to readjust to life, and uh, it's fantastic. And the first two seasons are on Netflix. Watch them. All right. Yeah, Sounds my, like my... cereal. Uh, Sean, what are you putting over? Um, yesterday, I finally put on Lupe Fiasco's 2015 record, Tetsuo and Youth, um, and was immediately um, pissed at myself for, for sitting on it for so long. Um, the second track, which is the first vocal track, uh, is titled Mural, and I'm putting over Mural. Um, YouTube, Lupe Fiasco, Mural. Uh, it's a nine-minute track that is oh, just... Shit. Yeah, it's just amazing the, the beat and um, just verse after verse is it's just incredible. Wow, that's impressive. Nine minutes, Jesus. So he's kind of moved past the skateboard rap phase. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. All right, I want to hear it, Steve. You're putting over a scene from Indian in the cupboard. You don't deserve that hair. Uh, it's you don't deserve that hair. Look it up, kids. Uh, I'm putting over a video game this week. It's called Dungeon Souls. It's in early access on Steam. It's like five bucks. And it's a super small file, so even if you have a shit computer like Adam Myros, you can run it on your computer. Basically, it's this dungeon-crawling game um, with kind of cool, like, 16-bit-style pixel art. And the whole, I guess, thrust of the action is you enter a dungeon, it's randomly generated, and you have to step on these little symbols on the floor, and there's five on each floor. But every time you step on a symbol, a shit ton of enemies come at you, and... Uh, and once you step on five symbols, the door opens and you can leave the level. But when the door opens, this thing called the Redeemer comes and it can kill you in one hit. So you have to kind of strategically move yourself around this dungeon so you can, you know, activate the symbols in the right order so you can get out of there before someone kicks your ass. It's very fun, really easy to pick up and play, definitely recommend it. Sounds like it would make for a hell of a film. It would make for a hell of a film. How and hey, I got... I, what's that? How much do you get paid from uh, uh, Steam and Medium? I don't know. I guess I well. I mean, Steam is like the only platform for playing PC games, basically. So I mean, you know, that just kind of comes with the territory. One more thing too. Another game that you you motherfuckers should check out because this is actually a video game I'd recommend to the three of you. It's called Her Story, and it's one of the first times. Sounds lame. I, I don't like it. <laughs> it's yeah. It's got a girl in it. It's one of the first times I've played a game where it it uses like full motion video, but it's not horrible. So it's it's kind of like a uh, it's it's almost like a police procedural mixed with a desktop simulator. So you you have like a desktop from 1995, and you have all these VHS clips of uh, these interrogations of this woman, and you have to try and solve this crime from these these old uh, like you know video footage things. But the game itself, like the game parts of it, it, it works like a search engine. So you like you'll watch a clip and then you can search for like keywords to find more information and stuff like that. It's really cool. So it's basically uh, Sewer Shark. It's it's a lot like Sewer Shark, but but mixed with uh, you know detective mystery. What if, what if Sewer Shark had a mystery in it, other than the mystery of how Sewer Shark was ever made in the first place? All right, that does it for the Opera Cast. For this week, uh, next week we got another shotgun wedding coming your way, and I'm very excited because we get to watch some of my favorite movies. Well, two of my favorite movies. And <laughs> make sure, if you're listening to us, go on iTunes, 
rate us, write a review. It really, really helps out a lot. Even if you hate our guts, we, we want to keep doing this so it helps people discover our stuff. So, yeah, rate us, write a review. And uh, read other piece. And, hey, Sean's got a new piece up on Shepard Express about Drake. You can read that at shepherdexpress.com. There's plenty of content on optimismvaccine.com. And... I'm going to have another video up soon. It's, it's going to be a big week, so check all that stuff out. Steve Coleman, as always, the last word is yours. Don't go cheap on your stain remover.